Pound the Rock to Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined as always on the morning after the 2023 NBA draft by co-host Joe Wolfold. What up, Cash? How many times during the course of a season can we say that we made it? But we made it through yet another of the uh, annual landmark events. Right. Yeah, that requires a lot of work on our part, but which we are happy to do. And uh, and now we're going to talk about it. Now we're going to pot about it. Got a lot of problems with you people. Now I'm going <laughs> to tell you all about it. Uh, it's a Seinfeld Festivus joke there. But anyway, yes, morning after the draft. And what we're going to do is not really talk about the draft. Because, look, if you want full comprehensive coverage of the draft itself, of the prospects and the selections made and all that jazz, you can... Hit the score app. You can find all of that content there. We've got our draft tracker. Some of our news editors put up a draft grades where you can find good analysis of what all 30 teams did on draft night from the actual selection standpoint. So all that is covered. Wolfon and I, just because of how busy we are covering the league and the players already in it throughout the course of the season, we've said before, we do not pretend to be draft or scouting experts. You know, we have our opinions on guys based on our, you know, the draft prep leading up to it and all that. And as we start researching on guys, we can kind of talk about whether we like picks and all that. But for the most part, I don't think if we just did a draft related episode talking about the prospects, we're telling you anything you haven't heard anywhere else. So what we decided to do, both in terms of what we wrote about for the app this morning and what we're going to talk about today is we thought it'd be more interesting to dive into the draft day trades that were consummated that had to that involved actual active NBA players and the big ones obviously involved Kristaps Porzingis and Jordan Poole and Chris Paul and Tyus Jones and Marcus Smart but a few minor ones that were interesting as well between Sacramento and Dallas and who am I forgetting in Oklahoma City so anyway so we figured uh, just like what we wrote about in the app is that we would dive into that today for the podcast and we would dig into how the seven teams involved in draft day trades that actually included active NBA players made out. The only draft related note I had has nothing to do with analysis and everything to do with comedy is Wolfond, our listeners, please tell me that you have already heard and or seen Mitch Kupchak's <laughs> soliloquy. <laughs> On Brandon Miller and why the Hornets felt comfortable with him at number two, ahead of a Scoot Henderson, for example. Well, I think to be considered a soliloquy, you actually have to say something. (laughs) And Mitch Kupchak said some words that almost amounted to a thing, and then he walked them back. And that was the totality of what he said in trying to explain why they ultimately chose Brandon Miller over Scoot Henderson. And it's like, He could have laid out the case in very simple terms. Like, this was not a difficult thing. Like, again, you you said it off the top, right? We're not draft experts. I haven't done the requisite amount of film study to be able to say with 100% certainty. Not that I I don't think anybody even those who have done the requisite work to have an informed opinion on this could say with 100% certainty that this was the wrong pick. But he could say look, we really like Brandon Miller's size. Like this is a dude who is six foot nine, who can create off the bounce, who can shoot and like score at all three levels. And we just valued that a ton. Like that's a really easy thing to say and leave it at that, you know, for as special as we think Scoot Henderson is as a prospect, we just valued what Brandon Miller brings that much more. And uh, what he said instead was, 
Well, he was a little bit you want younger. Me to read, you, want me to, you want me to read it word for word? Yeah, yeah, read it, read it, read it. And this is, again, th this was not like a complex question and even comparing him in school. It was literally what made you guys comfortable with Brandon Miller. That's it. Very simple question that you could have answered very simply, even with BS GM talk. Instead, when asked what made the Hornets comfortable with Brandon Miller at number two, Mitch Kupchak said, well, everything that we, you know, every answer they got, we got to every question. I'd say he's a freshman, right? So, you know, he's a little bit, you know, I'd say younger than, um, excuse me, I wouldn't say younger. I, I better not even go in that direction. Actually, I'll just back off. <laughs> He really made it seem as if he was being cross-examined and not just asked a very simple question about why they value Brandon Miller as a basketball player. Did you see even Hugo the Hornet reacted with absolute heartbreak to the selection of Brandon Miller? Have you seen that clip going around? I haven't, but... So there's a... Someone posted it. Some like Charlotte uh, news reporter posted it because I guess the, the Hornets had their draft party in the arena and... Someone had the uh, their phone on the crowd, waiting for the crowd reaction to whatever whoever they picked. There's all this buzz, and then when they announce Brandon Miller, you just hear a bunch of like, "Oh, everyone's mad." But the best part of it is even Hugo the Hornet forgets to remain in character and goes from like arms up waiting for the pick to Brandon Miller gets announced and just completely slumps his head, puts his hand on his knees, and is like so defeated. By the news. So, so I guess, d did this read to you, the Cupcheck stuff, I mean, not Hugo the Hornet, who I'm <laughs> somehow learning for the first time is named Hugo. I guess that's my bad for not knowing that. Did that seem to you like Brandon Miller would not have been his ideal selection at number two and he didn't have a pre-prepared answer for how he was going to explain a pick that he didn't actually want to make? And maybe some MJ influence before MJ gets the hell out of there. I don't, I, yeah. man, I honestly you just figure like somebody, if, if he'd been really gung ho about that pick, he would have been able to explain it in a, you know, better fashion than he did. Otherwise, yeah. he's just the worst public speaker I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> even when he started to go down the route of saying he was younger and then said, oh, you know what? I better not even go there or whatever. I'm going to hold back. Like then it got me thinking, well, like what? Was he originally going to say, like, you know, he's not actually as good as some of these other guys, but we like the fact that he's young? Because, like, isn't Scoot just as young? Like, I don't know. I was confused about that. Then I was thinking, I don't know, maybe if he would have kept going, he was about to disparage, like, one of the other pro Maybe he was trying to say, like, oh, uh, you know, yeah, he's young, but he had a good interview, and he was going to say, like, well, well, this other guy didn't have a good interview. Like, I, I have no idea what the hell he was thinking or trying to say. I don't think anyone, literally, I don't think anyone has an idea what Mitch Kupchak was thinking or trying to say in that moment. But, yeah, I, I don't know how to read it. I could see it both ways. Yeah, uh, I, I think, ultimately, I come away feeling, if there is a sense of disappointment for me, because, again, I, you know, Brandon Miller might turn out to be a hell of a player, and they might come to be viewed as being, you know, prescient in having taken him second overall and sort of gone against the grain here. But knowing that the overwhelming consensus was that Scoot was the second best prospect in this class, could you not have extracted something in exchange for that number two pick? Like even like just to move down to three, right? And yep. take Miller there. Knowing that Scoot was Portland's guy, like... 
I mean, maybe the cat was just out of the bag at this point and there was nothing they could do to walk it back. But if you're looking at the process holistically and maybe looking at some of the leaks that led to everybody knowing that Charlotte was going to draft Miller and so any other posturing was just going to be a bluff. Right. Like, you would hope as a Hornets fan, you know, or as a member of the Hornets organization, that they could have thrown up enough of a smokescreen to make people think that they were actually going to take Scoot and then maybe you get something from Portland in exchange for moving down. Like, yeah. And, and this is not, you know, you can look at the Blazers wizard swap that happened, right? Just for the wizards to move up from eight to seven, they gave up two second rounders. Okay. I think given the magnitude of this pick, like the, moving up from three to two, getting a prospect as well regarded as Scoot Henderson. And and the guy, as you mentioned, that it was clear that the Blazers wanted, like Scoot right. was their guy. That should be worth signif- significantly more than those yep. two second rounders. Even if it was just the two second rounders, that's still better than getting nothing. But I think you could have gotten something of like real value probably from Portland in exchange for moving up there. You know, whether or not Portland even wanted to keep Scoot, which it appears as if they do, just for the sake of like, hey, everybody around the league seems to be interested in trading for the number three pick right now. Like there was a lot more talk about people trading with Portland than with Charlotte. And now part of that probably has to do with where Charlotte is at in their competitive cycle versus Portland and what those two teams are trying to do respectively. But like people want to trade with Portland because they wanted to get Scoot Henderson. And it's just weird to me that like the, the Hornets couldn't have capitalized on that and like gotten something as if to say, Hey, like Blazers, you're going to have a lot more avenues available to you if you're able to draft Scoot Henderson than if you're uh, drafting Brandon Miller at three. So give us something to move up to two one way or another. Like you, I don't, I don't know. Just, yeah, felt like if they'd played it better, uh, they could have gotten their guy and gotten something else on top of that. I completely agree with you. And the one part I disagree with is you said it's a little, it like seems weird to you. It doesn't seem weird to me only because that kind of shrewd impression thinking would require critical thinking skills. And right now I'm just more concerned about why Mitch Kupchak can't put a sentence of English together. So I'm, I, I'm not surprised at all at the fact that they did not make said move that would have required some thinking outside the box from proactive thinking, some critical thinking. Cause again, did you hear Mitch Kupchak try to answer a very simple question? I did. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. So it's bizarre yeah. all the way around, but uh, yeah, we can uh, you want to talk move about the on from did make trade? Yeah. All right. Well, I think the big four we're going to talk about are the Celtics, Warriors, Wizards, and Grizzlies. I feel like we can, very quickly touch on the Mavs, Kings, and Thunder at the end, just because they made very minor deals that are more about flexibility. But anyway, Celtics, Warriors, Wizards, Grizzlies, where do you want to start? I mean, do you want to just start with the Celtics since that's the team we started with in the feature you can find on the app right now and the team that you wrote about early this morning or late last night, I should say? Yeah, let's start there. Uh, I think it's a pretty fascinating trade for them. And I don't know if it got more fascinating uh, during the draft itself, but it certainly got weirder as they took that number 25 pick that they got in the deal. I mean, they got two first rounders, one of which was the Grizzlies pick in last night's draft at number 25. 
the other of which is this very lightly protected Warriors pick in 2024 that, you know, we'll get into talking about the Warriors shortly, but I think that pick could wind up being pretty valuable. But they turned that 25th pick into the 31st pick, which they then turned into number 34 and 39. Then they turned 34 into 38, and then they traded 39 as well. So they wound up getting Jared Walsh with the number 38 pick and four future second rounders in exchange for continually trading down and then eventually out uh, of that 39th pick. So I I, maybe like, I I don't see any confirmation on this, but I guess just intuitively you could say they're trying to duck that second apron. That huge extension for Jalen Brown is probably coming. And so they would rather have the, second rounder on their books than like the rookie scale attached to a first round pick. You think that you think that was what it was about? I would imagine. Um, Cause it was weird. Just like one of the big features, like a, a big sort of chip they got in return for trading Marcus smart was moving up 10 spots in last night's draft. Yeah. And then they wind up making their, first and I think only pick of the draft later than they were initially select like yeah. slated to select. Yeah. So it was just weird in that sense that that was how they came away with it. I'm not like saying that those four future seconds don't matter. And some of them could wind up being pretty good if you look at like the breakdown of where those second rounders are going to be coming from. But that was just a little bit strange. So there was that element of it. And then, you know, there's the element obviously of trading somebody who has been you know very deeply woven into the fabric of their culture their Heartbeat, play man. style and on court identity um you know defensive player of the year two seasons ago whether or not we agreed with that selection like we can both agree uh, a, a tremendous defender one of the best guard defenders in the league even though i think he took a step back there last season really underrated playmaker as i say all the time like just i, I think the Celtics offense over the last few years has operated best when he is sort of pulling the strings and Tatum and Brown are working, you know, off ball and being more sort of like secondary playmakers uh, rather than initiators. Cause I think smart has done a really good job of piloting that offense in spite of his sometimes wonky shot selection. Um, so like they, yeah, I mean, just like a, a towering cultural figure uh, in, you know, the last decade, basically, of Celtics ba- uh, basketball in exchange for a sometimes maligned <laughs> figure, uh, someone who has been injured for huge swaths of his career, who has been a frustrating player to watch at times, who I think people felt and maybe continue to feel hasn't really lived up to his talent, uh, even though I mean, I think last year was probably the best season of his career and the closest he's come to realizing that talent. I think Kristaps Porzingis is a, a really good player uh, who can help the Celtics in a lot of different ways. But uh, I don't know. It's just uh, on, on a couple of different levels, I'm not sure that this is the exact move that I would have made as the Celtics in order to address the couple of things that they clearly wanted to address in making this deal. One of which was, you know, obviously 
solidifying the front court rotation, uh, which they needed to do because there wasn't a ton of depth there. And like Al Horford is 37 and Robert Williams, the third is perpetually hobbled. Uh, and the other of which is potentially, you know, further cost cutting uh, like down the road because Smart had two years left on his deal, which would pay him, you know, an average of 20 million a season. And Porzingis just opts into the last year of his contract, which is going to pay him 36 million this year. And then he can come off the books. But the reasons that I, I, that seems maybe not that clean to me is one, if you're looking at like, kind of bringing a little bit more stability or reliability to your front court mix because Horford is really old and Robert Williams is always injured. Like the Porzingis is not the paragon of reliability or availability, right? Yeah. As one of our uh, loyal listeners who we've given a shout out to before, Leslie tweeted after that deal to me, the only downside here is that the Celtics big man rotation is now held together by Scotch tape. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, it's just if you're looking for that sort of insurance, like injury insurance or just insurance against further regression from Horford, I, I don't know. Like Porzingis just doesn't scream reliability to me. And maybe it's like you you mentioned uh, with the Beal trade for Phoenix, right? Where you have Beal and KD and to a slightly lesser extent Booker who are all injury risks in their own way. You know, you have three of those guys and they are all sort of insurance for each other. Right. So maybe that's sort of the theory of the case here for Boston. And th- this is without even getting into what Porzingis brings when he is healthy, which is a lot. Um, but from that perspective, it just seemed like a bit of a strange direction to go in looking for that stability. And then in terms of like the potential cost cutting benefits... If that's how you're looking at it, then that means you're just letting Porzingis walk after this season. In which case, it feels harder to justify trading smart. Because it's like, the the odds of bringing Porzingis back for something less than the you know, $20 million AAV that smart was slated to make on the last two years of his deal, like the two years beyond this year, like you're, they seem virtually non-existent, right? Like you're not bringing him back for any or certainly not much less than that. No. And if you are, it's because he didn't have the season that you are hoping he had when you traded for him. And if that's the case, you probably don't want to bring him back anyway. So like, if you want to bring him back, it's probably because he ended up earning even more. Yeah. In which case, so it's, in in which case it won't be a cost cutting move (laughs) at all. So it kind of feels like it's only actually going to be one of those things or another. Uh, Or I guess there is a third scenario where it's like, he's a really good stopgap for this season. And then they figure out where they want to go with that front court subsequently. But um, I don't know. It's it's imperfect, I guess, is what I'll say. And that's a, an unfair standard to hold the Celtics to. Like, very few trades are perfect. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, potential benefits here for them. Uh, I think, in a way, like, Porzingis kind of combines the most valuable attributes that you get from Horford and from Rob Williams in that, he can space the floor for them, uh, you know, whether at the four or the five. I think it'll be interesting to see the kind of combinations yeah. that we see because you could have any combination, right? Like you, we know that Horford and Rob Williams can play together. We've seen that over the last couple of years. Porzingis and Horford can work. Porzingis and Rob Williams can conceivably work. And 
you know, I think actually, uh, not offensively, but certainly defensively, Porzingis' teams historically have been more successful with him at the four yep. than with him at the five. So I don't know how often the Celtics plan to play him at center, but one way or another, like he brings the the floor spacing of Horford uh, and like the pick and pop ability along with the rim protection, you know, again, maybe not quite on the same level, but high level rim protection that you get from Rob Williams, as well as this rim running element where he can score inside. And then you have like the, the ISO scoring and the post scoring that he brings that is like far beyond what you get from either of those two guys. So he, he brings a lot to the table for the Celtics without a doubt. Uh, but there's also, you know, some risk baked into that. And then you think about what they lose in trading smart, who has been just so vital to what they've done, especially defensively over the last few years, like his, not only his switchability, which has allowed them to be one of the more switchable defenses in the league, but his ability to, as a guard, be like a real deterrent as a low man. Right. And um, just like his, intelligence and communication that I think has been a big part of the scheme versatility that we've seen from that defense that walks out the door. And I think that is going to sort of inevitably lead to like a a changing shape of that defense, right? They're not going to look the same as they've looked over the last few years. There's they're they're not going to be nearly as switchy. I don't think Porzingis is primarily a drop defender who can play up to the level, maybe a little bit, but um, yeah, for for a guy who's as, unicorn like offensively as Porzingis is at his size he's actually not the most mobile guy defensively when it comes to defending in space no I like you want to keep him around the basket I think as often as you can now uh, playing him with Rob Williams like having two rim protectors of that caliber out there at the same time will still allow them to do a lot of different things right like if they want to switch Rob Williams out knowing they have Porzingis behind him, that can work and sort of vice versa, right? Like there's a lot of flexibility that comes with playing two rim protectors at the same time, especially two who can, you know, in Rob Williams's case, move his feet very well. In Porzingis's case, you know, move his feet okay, I think, in space. Uh, so I'm not saying their defense is going to fall off a cliff. It's just going to look different. And... I, I sneakily think that losing Smart's playmaking on offense, as much as you get from Porzingis and as much more as he brings in terms of like scoring and just, you know, overall offensive output, I guess, I would maybe worry a bit from a process perspective about what losing Smart's, uh, you know, passing and overall offensive orchestration might mean. Yeah, I just think it's a very un-Celtics like move because we've gotten so used to and I know a lot of it was when like Danny Ainge was running the the show and everyone would make fun of him for standing pat and whatever but for the most part in general especially in this era of Celtics ball they've been very committed to like and rightfully so we like our team yeah we've had all these assets in the past whatever but we don't need to use them just to use them to go chase the starriest name or to like massively overhaul our team we like our team. We've been to the conference finals four times in six years. We've been to the final. Like the team as presently constructed, even though they hadn't won, was clearly good enough to win. This move just seems so on Celtics like because it seems like the kind of move where it's like you shake things up and you move this 
you know, in his own right, franchise icon, heartbeat of the team, guy that's been there for so long. For the guy who is a starrier name, and in theory, I think a lot of people would say is the better player, but I don't necessarily think the move actually makes you better. And that kind of shake up to shake things up, a little bit of cost cutting, get the starrier name, but not necessarily improve your team is the kind of move I'm just not used to the Celtics making, right? It's not, in terms of the Porzingis stuff, like you'll remember, I I wrote about him this year uh, during the season, talked about why I thought he was like one of the most attractive trade chips out there this year. I did a whole video about it for Unfiltered. And a big part of it was, was, as you mentioned, I thought this was actually his most complete season. I thought this was the year he turned into the, into the type of player where I really thought he could be a really nice complimentary star on a contender because the way he had slightly tweaked his offensive game, the way his efficiency had trended upwards in certain areas, I thought it was he was at a point where he could be the least disruptive you know, if he joined a contender and kind of fit within an offense in ways that maybe he couldn't before. Even like his post scoring, he was way more efficient than he's been before. His ISO frequency went down, but his efficiency went up and he was just a lot smarter in the way he went about it. Uh, The pick and pop stuff was good. His shooting was good. Just everything about it, I really liked. Passing too. His passing was better than it's ever been before. Uh, Defensively, he got back to being one of the best rim protectors in the league. Like everything was there. But one of the things I wrote about at the time was that the reason I was so gung-ho for contenders to move for him during the season was that given his injury history, given his track record, it was one of those things that I admit, this is maybe more of a gut thing and you can have, like maybe people will say that doesn't make any sense. Like if this is who he is now, this is who he is. But because of the injury history and the track record, Whenever there's a guy like that who suddenly kind of puts it all together at this stage of his career in a season, you know, he had a year and a half left on his contract by the trade deadline. I almost see it as like, if you want to go after that guy, you got to pounce on it while he's actually in the middle of that season. Because I'm just not convinced that he can actually replicate it over another season, a whole season next year. And I saw it as like, contending teams should be trying to trade for him because of who he was in 2022, 2023. And the fact that with only one year after that, it's a small risk, even if it doesn't pan out after that. I wasn't as gung-ho on teams letting 2022, 23 expire and then trading for him as an expiring in 2023, 24, and hoping that this guy who hasn't been able to put it together consistently multiple years in a row before can suddenly do that. So that's where I'm at with the Celtics. Like I, I get it. I, I see how we can help them. Like I, I totally get that part of it. I'm just not convinced that even with the ways I've loved how he's improved his game, I'm just not convinced Porzingis actually makes them better when replacing Marcus Smart, even though I know positionally it's not like he's replacing them, but you know what I mean. And that's where I'm at with the Celtics, where it's like, it's not even that I necessarily hate the trade or think it's a horrible or dumb move. It's that I feel like if you're going to move a guy like Marcus Smart, both in terms of what he actually does on the court and what he means to your franchise, to do it in a move where I'm not convinced you actually got better is a really tough pill for me to swallow. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a good chance this does make them better. And in terms of the sustainability of what Porzingis did last season, I will say I think that was the culmination of a years-long progression toward him recognizing how to utilize his size inside the arc. And a big part of that with me, and we talked about this a lot with Miles Turner last year too, right? Was just rolling a little bit more. Even if you're rolling into post-ups, 
as opposed to just like straight diving all the way to the rim. Previously, when I feel like Porzingis would just like pop and pop and pop every single time you set a screen, or, you know, I'm using the term set, set a screen liberally there because that is not really his forte. Um, like catching those screens flush and really putting a body on guys. He's not the best screen setter in the world, but uh, but he would pop and like that just makes it so much more difficult to actually take advantage of a switch on the backside, right? Because you're then catching the ball 20 plus feet from the basket. It's a problem we've spotlighted with with him and Turner and Carl Anthony Towns and guys like that in the past. But like rolling more out of those screens when he's turning those into post-ups against switches, he's catching the ball so much deeper. And that's a huge part of the reason I think we're seeing though that, that post-up efficiency rise in the way that it has. Like it, it had never been as high as it was this past season when I think after Jokic, he was the most efficient post-scorer in basketball but it had been trending that direction for a while. And I think in Boston, like when he's playing next to Rob Williams, for example, and they're setting, you know, double ball screens, you're going to have Rob rolling and KP popping, right? Like that just makes intuitive sense. When he's playing with Horford or when he's playing at the five, there's going to be all kinds of space for him to roll into. And I think he's going to continue being able to do that uh, and continue being, you know, efficient inside the arc in a way that he hadn't been earlier in his career. I think the one thing I wonder about that is, you know, when he was doing it last year, it's like you'd see him running pick and roll or dribble handoff with like Bradley Beal or Monty Morris. And there are usually pretty small defenders guarding those two, as opposed to like, you know, running those two-man actions with like Tatum or Jalen Brown when those guys are going to be guarded by like big wings and forwards. I don't know if he's going to have as much success busting those switches because, you know, they're uh, like, it's like a lot bigger defenders that are going to be switching onto him. Now, obviously like Derek White's there, Malcolm Brogdon's there. Like there's still going to be opportunity for him to run pick and roll with like smaller guards and take advantage of switches in those ways. But at the same time, I don't know if defenses are switching those actions when it's yeah. like Derek White and Malcolm Brogdon. Like, I think they'll just sort of live with dropping and and daring those guys to beat them with like pull up jump shots and, and drives. So um, I think he might be hard pressed to replicate those post up numbers because of the different types of defenders he's going to be seeing in potential switch scenarios. Also, one of the things that came out of all this trade stuff is does Malcolm Brogdon has still have two working arms? Yeah, right. no, that's that's a a genuine concern because you think about okay well like the Celtics have this guard depth and they can weather the loss of a guy like Smart because they have Derek White who I think frankly was better than Smart yep. last year and Malcolm Brogdon who just won sixth man of the year uh, and I guess Jalen Brown if you want to consider him a guard but he's a lot more wingy to me um, but yeah I mean like if Brogdon's health is so sketchy that it literally kiboshed the trade they were initially going to make to acquire Porzingis where he was supposed to go to the Clippers. That doesn't give you a lot of confidence in their ability to actually uh, sustain that loss and still be just like set in the backcourt. So yeah, I don't know. I come away feeling neutral about it, I guess. Like I can see the upside. I can see the potential downside. I I think that Warriors pick could turn into a pretty good asset, whether they wind up using it to draft somebody for themselves or whether they use it as a trade chip. Like it's not a bad piece of business. I just... 
And I don't know what other options really would have been available. I haven't thought about it enough to come away saying, well, they could have gotten this guy instead and it would have made more sense. I just don't know that this is the move I would have made if I was the Celtics in order to address their needs. But again, Porzingis is really good. And if he can stay healthy, then he will be a valuable addition for a number of reasons. So I don't know. I would give it like a B minus from the Celtics perspective. Yeah, I think that's fair. You want to talk some Warriors? Or do you want to, like, should we just talk about that trade in totality before we move on to the Warriors yeah, we can side do that. of things? We can um, do that. Because we are on the subject of Marcus Smart, so maybe we should talk about the team that acquired him. Man. Marcus Smart going to Memphis, where I think he does defensively take on much of the responsibility that D- Dylan Brooks is leaving behind. And offensively, he's much more of a connector Mm-hmm. than a possession hijacker. So I you know from that standpoint if it's like well you're losing Dylan Brooks this year but you're getting Marcus Smart, that's great. Losing Tyus Jones not as enthusiastic about because we're both Tyus Jones lovers. I mean he's been one of the most consistent impressive reserve guards in the league for a long time now. Where do you come out on this for the Grizzlies? Like are they better? I mean, also the fact that, as you mentioned, Marcus Smart's an underrated playmaker and John Morant's going to miss at least a quarter, more than a quarter of the season. So like, I, I like it for them two ways in the sense that he replaces a lot of Dylan Brooks's defensive contributions. And obviously he's not John Morant offensively, but like he brings some playmaking while they are without their starting point guard. And, you know, after they also just traded Tyus Jones. Yeah, no, I, I like it for them. And I think... The acquisition cost was, you know, pretty steep, honestly. If you think about that Warriors pick that they gave up on top of their own first rounder in last night's draft, on top of Tyus Jones, it's like, you know, that's a a decent amount to give up for, uh, you know, a non-star player. But I think, like, if as hard as it is to imagine Marcus Smart playing for any team other than Boston... If there's another team you could imagine him playing for, it is the Grizzlies, right? Yeah. Like he just feels like uh he he feels like a Grizzly, like he was born to be a Grizzly. And I think his sort of defensive tendencies will fit in there pretty seamlessly. Like he'll do a lot of what Brooks did in terms of doesn't really matter the size of the opposing team's best perimeter creator. That's the guy that Marcus Smart's going to defend every single night. Just having like those two bookends where you got smart at the point of attack and Jaron Jackson on the back line, the two most recent defensive player of the year award winners. uh, That's a pretty good place to start when you're talking about uh, building a defensive infrastructure. And in between that, you know, it's, I guess a little bit sketchier, but you couldn't ask for a better compliment to Morant on the defensive side of the ball, right? Somebody who's going to be able to shield him uh, and make, you know, make sure there's some insulation there defensively. Uh, You know, obviously he already had that insulation on the back line and now he sort of has it at the point of attack as well. I, uh, yeah, I I like the fit. I think offensively it could be a little bit tenuous when jaw gets back because, you know, obviously both of those guys are fairly sketchy three point shooters And then if you think about them, you know, in a starting lineup with Steven Adams on the floor, I think that could be tough to navigate from a spacing perspective. But they're also going to be, 
you know, a lot of times where the Grizzlies just roll out smaller lineups or, or stretchier lineups with Jaron at the five, I bet they'll close a lot of games that way. And I think because Smart can slide up and guard twos and threes and even fours in some cases, I don't think it's going to be an issue really playing him, Ja, and Bane at the same time. Yeah. Like, that's why I would say, you know, he's he actually is replacing Brooks defensively in, in, a, in that positional role because functionally, you know, like if they're going up against somebody where like the shooting guard is the most dangerous creator, like he'll guard that player. But if it's a, if it's a wing creator, that's who he'll guard also. And Bane yep. can just slide down and guard like the two. Um, so I think ultimately he'll be able to make those three guard lineups work. And when they do go to those smaller, stretchier lineups that are tilting more toward offense, I think those lineups will still be plenty good enough defensively that, uh, they'll they'll be able to uh, more than survive but thrive in those minutes. So ultimately, I like the fit for them. I do think those first 25 games without Jaw probably played into their decision-making here in terms of the yeah. type of player they were looking at getting. And it does hurt to lose Tyus Jones, who's been, in my opinion, the best backup point guard in the league for the last two or three years now. But uh, I think they obviously needed some kind of shakeup. They get a guy who's going to bring a, you know, a ton of veteran leadership on and off the court. And um, obviously also a lot of on-court value at both ends of the floor that uh, is going to be super beneficial to them. So I think, you know, I ultimately come away feeling like it is an upgrade, if an incremental one, because it feels closer to a wash, like losing Tyus Jones and Dylan Brooks and getting smart, who's sort of like a combination of those two guys, feels closer to a wash. Um, but I'd say probably a slight upgrade on the court. And then just in terms of like whatever kind of off court or culture shakeup they felt like they needed. Yeah. Smart's the kind of guy who can maybe provide them that in a way that they need as well. Yeah. Given the defensive upside of this team and the fact that they will be without their worst defender during that time, I can see them coming out of those 25 games, like with 14 or 15 wins, but with an average game score of like 89 to 85 like Mm. uh who do you think is gonna start i mean i guess okay let's say steven adams is back in the starting lineup when the season begins uh so he's starting at the five jaron starting at the four bane starting at the two smart starting at the one who's Who's starting at the three like zyre williams maybe or conchar like those are remember uh williams had started to earn starts for them at the end of the 21-22 season, right? Yeah, and he his got rookie hurt, year. And he was out for a lot of this past year. So I think that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. I also I mean, think Conchar is like quite a bit better than him right now, though. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do you put Kennard in there for his shooting, given that with Smart, Adams, and even Jaron, it's you know a bit of a clogged floor? And then move yeah, Kennard back to the bench. Yeah, potentially. Um, I th- I mean, that's that looks like the weak spot for them right now, though. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and the, the offseason is not over yet, so maybe they'll take steps to address that. But, uh, yeah, I thought this was an interesting move after kind of hearing them link to various wings, you know, o- the OG Ananobis of the world that they might have yeah. been targeting. Interesting to see them go in this direction because obviously Smart is a guard, but he has, you know, defensively a lot of 
wingy tendencies. So uh, I don't hate it. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm actually very interested to see what it looks like when they're fully healthy. Because I think uh, I think they could be really good. Um, obviously, that's contingent on a number of things sorting themselves out. But uh, I think uh, I think it was a, an interesting type of player to target and um, could work. Could work really well. All right. If we're going to stick with the remnants of the Porzingis trade, we'll talk Wizards before we talk Warriors. Now, on the last episode, I ridiculed them mercilessly as I have been known to do when it comes to the Wizards over the years of Pound the Rock's existence. But I do want to say that I think the Chris Paul component of all the trades they've made this week should encourage Wizards fans when it comes to new team president Michael Winger. And the reason I say that is because, look, you can be as underwhelmed as you want to be, and we all are, about the return for Beal and Porzingis, you can say. And you can look at the fact that, look, when Kyle Kuzma likely walks as a free agent next week, the Wizards will have lost, in a span of six months, Rui Hachimura, who was once one of their highly touted prospects, Bradley Beal, Kristaps Porzingis, and Kyle Kuzma, with, at the end of the day, really uh, one outright first rounder to show for it. So I completely get the ridicule there. I'm one of the people that has ridiculed them. For Although, it. you know, sorry to interrupt you, but like that one outright first rounder is, is top 20 protected, right? In 2030. Yeah. It's a top 20 protected 2030 pick. So it's a and very <laughs> highly protected yeah. minimal well, amount of first round draft capital. What, what are, have you seen anything I have not regarding seen the rollover it, protections no, on that? I have not seen anything. So, but that's my point, right? Like the, essentially they got, they lost those four guys over a six month span for no first round equity, right? And that's embarrassing, but that's not on Michael Winger. Like he inherited this from the previous regime. Mm-hmm. We've, we talked ad nauseum last episode about, you know, Bradley Beal, regardless of what you think of who he is as a player and how he's going to fit in Phoenix, he was a diminished asset. He was a negative value contract because of the no trade clause in addition to the Supermax. Porzingis, as I said, I think there was some value there mid-season. Obviously, still value there with one year on his contract, but not quite the same. Chris Paul, who they got in the Beal trade, was really Michael Winger's first tradable asset that he fully controlled from start to finish as the Wizards' chief decision maker. And I thought from that aspect, he knocked that out of the park. Because I'm not even the big, you know I'm not the biggest Jordan Poole fan, but as you noted on Twitter, and as I think makes a lot of sense, Jordan Poole represents exactly the type of like buy low, high upside talent the Wizards should be targeting now that they have finally committed to a teardown and rebuild. And I think... Forget about like the underwhelming returns for Beal and all that. In the end, if you're just going by the draft day trades, they turned Chris Paul and Kristaps Porzingis into Jordan Poole, Tyus Jones, Danilo Gallinari, Mike, Mike Muscala, Ryan Rollins, whatever. Uh, the 35th pick last night, a 2027 second rounder, and that very highly protected top 20 protected 2030 first rounders, as well as multiple second rounders. They've got a boatload of those now. Plus they've got a bunch of the swaps, first round swaps from the Beal deal, which most of them won't matter. But at the same time, it's like 2028 and 2030 first round swaps with Phoenix giddy up, given the way that juicy swaps. So overall, my take on the, not just the Porzingis deal, but 
Washington's draft day trade activity is that while this is going to be a very slow, long, painful rebuild, I say kudos to Michael Winger for being the exec that, you know, however he got Ted Leonsis to finally sign off on a rebuild. He did it. He's the executive who finally ripped the Band-Aid off in Washington. The return when it came to Beal and even Porzingis, that's not on him. Like, he ripped the Band-Aid off. They're moving on from those guys. The return is the fault of the previous regime. Again, Chris Paul was the first one he really controlled, and he did more than what I thought he could do with that asset. They now have... You know, the rebuild's in place. They're obviously going to tank. Again, we made fun of the fact that they let all the transcendent draft classes pass by, and now they're finally deciding to tank before two reportedly weak draft classes. But again, that's not on Michael Winger. So while the week as a whole is very depressing for Washington basketball fans, Michael Winger's work specifically and their draft day trades, I thought, were reason for optimism in terms of the Michael Winger era. Because I think... You know, even with Poole, it's like even all the complaints I have about him, like the low basketball IQ, the way he regressed this season, I still think that, especially in the situation he's going to be in Washington now, like the Wizards have the time to let Jordan Poole figure out how good he can be through trial and error, through experimentation, through letting him kind of run things. Like Tyus Jones, I don't know, best case scenario, maybe in finally his first chance to be a full-time starter. Maybe he convinces them he should be in the backcourt of the future with Jordan Poole. But worst case scenario is he's one of the best trade chips in the league this season on an expiring $14 million contract. Like, good stuff there. They've got some draft capital. Again, it's going to be a slow, painful rebuild, but at least they are now out on a chartered course. I think they did really well. Uh, like, if you take the... Beal trade tree as a whole. I mean, I guess this is all just part of the same three-team yeah. trade. But, I yeah, I think they ultimately get back more than I would have expected them to in a Beal deal. Uh, you mentioned those swaps from Phoenix, a couple of which could wind up being really valuable. And I think Poole, as down as everybody is on him right now, and as much as his contract makes him feel like a negative asset... Washington is in a perfect position to bet on that upside and let Poole, like you said, kind of play through some mistakes, try to figure some things out. I mean, that could cut both ways. You could say like in an environment where, you know, he is sort of going to be the lead guy and there aren't going to be that many constraints on him and it's going to be a losing team. Like he could either develop or just like exacerbate bad habits but I think it's more likely that because first of all, like I, I was high on pool going into last season, even though I thought like during their championship run, there were some bad moments and, and some moments where they had to sit him just because he couldn't be on the floor for defensive reasons. I, I think that by the end of last season, it was just really clear that he was completely inside his own head. And I think more than anything, just being in a low stakes environment where He's going to have a little bit more consistency in terms of his offensive role and isn't going to get yanked if he makes a couple of defensive mistakes. I think that will be good for his development at the end of the day. And I think also, not that he didn't, I mean, he handled the ball a ton in Golden State. Like he, especially because of how often they like to tether Steph and Draymond together. Like when they were going to those transitional groups, a lot of the time it was Poole running the show. So I don't want to, say it's like oh now he's going to have the ball in his hands a lot like he's had opportunities to develop that side of his game but I think it's a little different um 
just actually being the number one guy, which he basically is going to be in Washington. One of the big things I'm going to be watching, like just overall offensive decision-making, obviously, but like playmaking, you know, is that an aspect of his game that he can really build out? Because I look at his toolkit and it's like, man, this dude is 24. He can create his own shot. He's got an explosive first step. He can move around really well off of the ball. Um, You know, the three-point shooting fell off last year and has never been, you know, an elite skill for him, but like still something he can obviously do. And then he just gets to the rim pretty much at will. Like those are like, that's a, that's a package of skills that a lot of teams would value in a young player. And it's just a question of sort of putting it all together and obviously ironing out the mistakes on both sides of the ball. Um, And I think he's going to get every opportunity to do that. I'm not saying it's going to work. It might wind up looking like, Oh wow, you, you know, you took a chance on this guy and it was the wrong chance to take. He could but single-handedly I still, bring back the Nick Young, JaVale McGee Wizards. <laughs> I, I don't think it's that dire, man. Come on. Like, he's, he's infinitely more skilled than Nick Young was in terms of what yes. he can actually do yeah. with the ball in his hands. Yeah. Um, so I think whether it works out or not, like, I think you can look at the, the process behind it and say, man, this is, this is the right time and the right situation in which a team in this position should be taking a chance on this player. Like, yep. uh, I think it's uh, uh, the right environment for him to work some of that stuff out. And for the Wizards, it's like, really, what's the downside? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, the contract might not look great, but they're not going to be paying anybody else. Exactly. So who cares? It's not like they're going to be pivoting to trying to contend anytime in the near future. So apart from like having that space to, I guess, be a dumping ground for bad contracts, like the the room that he's occupying on their cap sheet is not a huge concern to me. It's going to be more a question of like, can they help him reach his potential? Even just like get back to playing with the confidence that we saw him playing with a couple of years ago, rather than last year, which again, by the end of it, like by the playoffs, especially, it was just like, what is going on with this guy? I think he was definitely in his own head so i like that addition for them uh and yeah the totality of it looks pretty okay to me honestly like i i think they made out quite well given the circumstances like they they played the hand they were dealt and they played it as as well as they possibly could have in my opinion yep and that's what i'm saying i think the wizards fans should be encouraged by michael winger's first piece of work and by the way like uh patrick Baldwin Jr. is like not uninteresting, right? Like the the fact that I, maybe he can't do all all that much other than shoot the ball, but like to have a guy who's six foot nine who shot like thirty eight percent from deep as a rookie, there could be something there. Like yep. that was sort of I don't even think that was reported until much later, but that was a kind of a sneaky, interesting throw in as part of that deal. Absolutely. All right, you want to take the break, come back, talk Warriors, and then the three minor deals? Yeah. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. 
All right, well, fun. The team that abandoned ship on the Jordan Poole experiment is the team that just a little less than a year ago gave him $128 million. And that's the Golden State Warriors who turned Jordan Poole, the aforementioned Patrick Baldwin Jr., Ryan Rollins, a 2027 second rounder, and that top 20 protected 2030 first rounder into Chris Paul, CP3, the point guard, and Steph Curry. On the same team, all those years that Chris Paul has been searching desperately for that elusive championship ring, he ends up in the Bay. Imagine if that's where he finds, maybe that's where he had to go to finally get that ring. Maybe he gets number one while Steph and company in the big three there gets number five. But anyway, in terms of how he fits, doesn't fit on the court. Look, I think, I, I mean, I talked about this when we talked about the Suns getting Beal and losing CP, where it's like, I fully aware that at 38 years old, Chris Paul is not the player anymore. Like he cannot hit the highs consistently that even a guy like Poole can definitely not a guy like Beal can, but I think Chris Paul is still better and still impacts the game and impacts winning in ways that maybe I think people started to think he really didn't anymore at this age down the stretch of the season. Like he's still a guy that I think one, I, I think he gives the Warriors offense a different look than they've had, right? Like if you're, even if you're talking about running bench lineups when Steph Curry's not on the court, I mean, this, this has to be the guy that finally convinces Steve Kerr to like let a little bit more of structured offense come into play. Like Chris Paul's going to be running some pick and rolls, right? Chris Paul's not just going to be plugged in to the Warriors motion offense and be expected to not be Chris Paul. I think he'll give them a different look. I think he can run bench lineups playing off of Steph and the other stars. As I mentioned last episode, Chris Paul has been an elite catch-and-shoot guy. Like, he was 52% on catch-and-shoot threes this past season, even in a somewhat small sample of 88 on the season. I think that's a win for the Warriors. He's not the defensive player he once was, but he's a massive defensive upgrade over Poole. There are still size concerns, obviously, with the Warriors, especially on the perimeter. And again, I get I don't know, maybe you're thinking like absolute ceiling if Poole had got back to what he was before they gave him that extension. Like this is a downgrade, but I think based on the players they are right now, I do actually think Chris Paul impacts winning more than Jordan Poole does. And I think it's very rare for a team to, even if at worst it's a wash, but I think they actually did get a little better. I think it's rare for a team to get a little better, to get a lot older and to still get more flexible going forward. And that's what they did in this deal because Paul's 24-25 salary is fully non-guaranteed. They get out from owing Jordan Poole essentially an average of $32 million per year over the next four years. They've got Draymond's unrestricted free agency coming up next week. I think Poole being gone makes it more likely they're they're bringing Draymond back. The Clay thing a year from that, they'll get to that when they get to that. It might, like, they might not have to bring Clay back and that's fine. But they should re-sign Draymond now without Poole's money on the books a little more wiggle room when it comes to ducking that second tax going forward, a second apron going forward, excuse me, and all that stuff. I think all in all, other than the fact that it's a shame it went down with Poole the way it did after so much promise a year ago, I think remove yourself from that. You can't get attached to that. I think this was a good move from the Warriors. Um, Lukewarm. I think I... I don't know, man. I just think that... Maybe it's just hard for me to imagine right now Chris Paul being plugged into that system and how that's going to work. 
maybe it's me feeling like, okay, yeah, you just have him run a bunch of pick and rolls with transitional groups and then also thinking, well, who's he going to run those pick and rolls with? Yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe it's just me feeling like he's 39 and frankly looked pretty washed by the end of this past season. And they would have been better off trying to like rebuild Jordan Poole's confidence and or at least his trade value, you know, if they didn't plan to keep him long term and waiting and, and trying to find a different avenue to go here. I don't know. I just don't know if this if this is really the move that makes sense for Golden State. I hear what you're saying about the financial flexibility, right? The fully non-guaranteed next year of CP's contract and they get out from under that pool deal and that just allows them to do uh, some things that they might not have been able to do otherwise and uh, you know, potentially stay under that second apron. Although, are they going to be able to do that? Or you think, are they going to wind up over that apron anyway? I saw varying takes on Twitter from cap people that, said this it's i think a, a lot of it will depend on clay as well right like mm-hmm. if if they re-sign draymond this year give clay a big contract next year then it's going to be hard then they won't duck that second apron but again i'm i'm just not as convinced on the clay thing i think draymond even at this stage of his career is like you have to re-sign him but clay you know you get one more year out of him i, I don't know if you really want to be giving clay big money a year from now anyway yeah yeah, I don't know. It just feels like a deal where they shouldn't... And, like, the the pick they gave up in 2030 is, like, whatever. Top 20 protected. If they lose that pick, then they're probably in good shape. They're, they're a top, top 10, 10 team. team in the league yeah. in 2030. They're probably laughing. Yeah. Um, and then, I don't know, again, about the rollover protections, like whether that immediately converts to a couple of seconds or what happens with that pick beyond 2030. But whatever, that's not a super valuable asset they gave up there. But like, you know, Baldwin Jr. was their first round pick a year ago and they throw him into this deal and like pool again, you know, I'm trying to look at this deal in a vacuum, but I'm also thinking about how they have, you know, between Wiseman and now pool and I guess, you know, Kaminga and Moody are still there to potentially be that bridge to the future. But like, They're really starting to punt on any notion of sort of extending this window with a a second timeline or, like I say, a bridge to whatever the next era is going to be. And, you know, that was probably already a bit pie in the sky. Like, very few teams in history have ever been able to pull that off. Yeah. Um, But they would have been able to if they drafted LaMelo Mall, but that ship sailed long ago. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know where I come down. Like, I think there are... I'm curious to see what it looks like when CP and Steph are playing together. Same. Because it's not like, oh man, like, Chris Paul's gonna monopolize the ball and like, you want it in Steph Curry's hands. Like, yeah, you do want it in Steph Curry's hands some of the time, but he's the best off-ball player in the NBA. Like, maybe in NBA history. So I don't think it's the end of the world if you have... Chris Paul handling some of the time and like Steph Curry's just flying around and all of those off ball sets that they love to plug him into. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm more curious to see what happens when Steph does have the ball. And you mentioned like those catch and shoot numbers for Chris Paul last year, really small sample, like really low volume of attempts. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I'm just remembering in the playoffs, Denver 
specifically, like completely ignoring him when he was spotting up because he just like he's not a quick release shooter. Like he's a bit of a reluctant three point shooter at this stage. It's not you can throw those numbers at me and I'm still I'm still not coming away feeling like he's this big off ball threat who's going to have a ton of gravity as like a spot up guy. And he's yeah, not, I'm not saying he's going to all of a sudden be a catch and shoot specialist, but no. And he's not like the most active off ball mover. It's just it feels like a bit of a stylistic clash. And that doesn't have to be the end of the world. Like they could meet in the middle in a way that's harmonious for both team and player. Um, And maybe this is a failure of imagination on my part that I'm just having a hard time seeing it. But yeah, I don't know. Like without a real dive man on the roster, I feel like it's, I don't know stylistically if it's a good fit for, for Chris Paul or for the Warriors. It just... I don't know. I, well, I don't know if this was the guy. If they were going to trade pool and and go in this direction, I don't know if Chris Paul was the guy that I would have gone after. Yeah, but I do think it also speaks to probably how far pool has fallen in in terms of how he's valued around the league too. And I get your point where then if that's the case, they could have just tried to rebuild his value rather than sell low on him. But if they were going to move him now, if they thought it was imperative to get off that money now for whatever reason, then maybe there just wasn't better out there for Jordan Poole who's like you know in his own right a postseason liability yeah no I'm sure there wasn't honestly like this is probably as good as they could have done uh which is why I I I would have just felt better maybe about going into the season with him but also like there's the interpersonal stuff between him and Draymond that like maybe maybe it had just reached a breaking point and this needed to happen now so I don't know like I don't hate it uh, and I'm definitely very curious about it. Like seeing Chris Paul with that Warriors team is going to be a trip. But at this stage of his career, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how much he brings to this specific team. Yeah. Well, given the Warriors track record and Chris Paul's trade history, hell, maybe they uh, maybe they flip him before we get to see much of it in action anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm all right. I think that's enough on the four teams that made the most noise in terms of draft day trades and that we really have to dig into. There's a few more minor ones that we can touch on very quickly so we can get the hell out of here after a busy week. And the first one I want to dive into is just quickly the Mavs. They got off Davis Bertanza's contract to do it. They moved down from the 10th pick to the 12th pick, ended up with Derek Lively. By all accounts, should fit pretty nicely with Luka and if they resign Kyrie with Kyrie as well. Seven foot one big man. Uh, good finisher on the roll, elite block rates. So, you know, I, I, people were throwing out the Tyson Chandler comp. I don't like throwing out comps in general for guys who haven't played a game yet, but not thinking about it from like that type of career success, more thinking about it from that type of player type, that Tyson Chandler type it is a really nice snug fit beside Luca and maybe Kyrie as well. So I like that, but it's more about the fact that they they get off that Bertans deal. Now, Rashawn Holmes, who fell out of the rotation in Sacramento, we you know were both big fans of his. He makes more money than Bertans, or more guaranteed money in 2024-25. But this is all about 23-24 for the Mavs and how they're structuring things financially and how much flexibility they can have going into the summer. So in making this move, they actually end up with three players because they also got the 24th pick out of the deal. Olivier Maxens Prosper. And so they end up with Holmes, Lively, OMP, three players. And they spend about $1.9 million this season less 
than they would have if they had just kept Bertans and the 10th pick. So a little more wiggle room while adding an extra prospect. And who knows, maybe, you know, you buy low on Holmes, who is a very efficient reserve big man that really up until last year, I mean, he can't stay healthy, but has always been a pretty productive bench big. Um, But again, it's more about like the financial flexibility for them. Based on all the accounting I've seen, it seems like the Mavs can re-sign Kyrie and still potentially have access to the non-taxpayer mid-level. So they can re-sign Kyrie and add like a $12.4 million player. They also still have about $3.1 million left on the trade exception they got when they traded Bertans. They used most of that on Holmes, but yeah, that's kind of how it all shakes out for Dallas. I think it was an amazing night for Dallas. Like I'm honestly very impressed with what they were able to pull off here. And I think, whatever, you can feel any type of way, I guess, about their decision to tank those games at the very end of the season. Like, I think they could have won those games and still probably would have missed the playoffs because they didn't control their own destiny. And I think the Thunder still would have edged them out. So it doesn't even matter. But I think this basically justifies their decision, right? They got to keep their pick and then they flip it into two picks by you know, in this really elegant way, they only have to move down two spots in order to get off one of the five worst contracts in the league in Bertans. And they still, by all accounts, get the guy that they were targeting at 10 anyway in Derek Lively. They get to draft him at 12, but they get off Bertans, create this big trade exception, use it to absorb Holmes, who could still help them as a rotation piece, Mm-hmm. And in doing so, because Sacramento wanted to get off that deal and clear up cap space of their own, pull in that 24th pick, which they used to draft Omax, who, you know, I think could be something of a Dorian Finney-Smith replacement in terms of his ability to defend multiple positions on the wing and hopefully knock down some threes as well. So, like, that's just like a really nice series of moves given the, you know, limited avenues available to them. Um they they sort of like conjured that out of thin air, and I think that was really, really well done. Agreed. Okay, then we got the Kings, who traded Holmes and the 24th pick, Omax, and get a trade exception out of it. They get a trade exception worth a little more than $12 million, which is what Holmes was going to make this coming season. Um, look, from their perspective, Holmes had fallen out of their rotation, so essentially they traded a non-rotation player who might not have figured into their plans this season anyway, who had a 24-25 player option they did not clearly did not want to have to pay. And they did that to create a pretty good-sized trade exception. The downside is they sacrificed a late first-rounder to do it. This now gives Sacramento roughly 35-ish million in cap space this season, plus that very good-sized trade exception. If the Kings put that newfound cap space and trade exception, trade flexibility to good use to build on, you know, that invigorating 48 win season they just had and to continue to kind of keep this upward trajectory going. I think Kings fans will easily live with the fact that they ditched a late first rounder to create that space. Yeah. I mean, I could say regardless of what they do with it, like the the thinking behind it, the process, yep, it makes a lot of sense. I you know, to, in terms of getting off a a contract like Holmes's um, 
you know, that trading a late first, like that's pretty much the going rate for getting off that kind of deal yep. and doing it right before an off season where it allows you to create something close to max cap room. I think that just sort of makes sense. Right. And like, you know, obviously the draft pick could have helped them as well, but I think with the stage they're at, like they have young talent and something close to a, a set rotation already giving themselves the ability to add a real impact player with that space, you know, whether they ultimately do it or not, I think you could look at it and say, this was, you know, this is the right process and I don't think it should be like damned or absolved by the ultimate result. Now it'll look great if they're actually able to take somebody into that space that makes a a meaningful difference for them. I think the, the type of player that I've wanted them to acquire, you know, the type of guy that I wanted them to maybe target at the deadline last year is like, a legit, you know, defensive stopper on the wing. They've been linked to OG in some rumors this offseason. Uh that's that's not an issue with their cap space, obviously, but like that's obviously a type of player that they are looking to acquire one way or another. Um and also one where like because they have that cap space, they're not going to be constrained by having to send back matching salary. Yeah. Right. So like in that case if, and I'm not saying they would do this, but like if they wanted to just say, hey, why don't we try and do like Keegan Murray for OG straight up? They don't have to, like they could hang on to Harrison Barnes if they want to hang on to Harrison Barnes. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, I think that does help them in terms of facilitating trades. But if they want to just go the straight free agent route, you know, like, I don't know, can they entice Jeremy Grant? He's not an OG level stopper, but he is a, a power forward who can provide some secondary rim protection. And given that they like to place the bonus up at the level in pick and roll, like they could certainly use that. Um, That would be a a very interesting fit to me. I I just think it allows them to do a lot of different things in terms of roster building that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So I like it. What about Brooks there? Um, Yeah, I think they probably want somebody who can shoot the ball better than Dylan Brooks. I, I mean, I, not like I don't hate the fit, but if you're thinking about, you know, already having Sabonis and Fox in that starting lineup, I don't know. Brooks maybe complicates that a bit. Although I mean maybe he would be a bench piece anyway. Um but that's not he, he's gonna come in around mid level money, I think, anyway. Like I don't know if that's Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean he'll he'll be cheaper than a grant or the type of like players you know, Kings fans are hoping all this space turns into. I just meant in general. Um, all right. Yeah. Last Although, one. I mean, look, they could they could break up that 30-odd million into, you know, it's not yep. just going to be spent on one player necessarily. Yep. So if Dylan Brooks has like mid-level offers out there and the Kings are able with that space to go up to like 14 million to outbid the market and they're pairing that with, you know, another free agent that they're signing, uh, then yeah, that could work out really well for them. But one way or another, they have options. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what they do this offseason. All right. Last one. The Thunder use the cap space they were hoarding to absorb Bertans' contract from Dallas. And they move up from 12 to 10 to do it. Now, look, I on the surface, you can say, I don't know, is it worth it to move up two spots? But, you know, we're not in these draft rooms. Perhaps the Thunder really, really valued case and wallace in ways they didn't Derek lively or they just thought there was maybe uh you know a lot of teams have tiers and maybe they thought 10 was kind of the end of a better tier than they would have got at 12 
And so anyway, they moved up two spots, end up with Wallace instead of Lively and take on the Bretons contract. I mean, it's a very Thunder-esque move. Like Wallace profiles as a defensive guard who plays bigger than his size, kind of inconsistent shooter, but you know, has some two-way potential. Either way, Thunder used some of the cap space they've been hoarding to add more upside and talent to their already overstocked cupboards. Uh, I don't know, you have any thoughts at all on this? About them dipping into their cap space to move up two spots as opposed to maybe using more of it this offseason? Like, I guess they just figure Wallace's upside, you know, and potential future trade value outweighs what they could have done with this cap space or what they were planning to do with this cap space this summer anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think that you could argue they're just better off operating as an over-the-cap team anyway. Yeah. And yeah, you mentioned it. It's a Thunder-esque trade. Like their MO is they will do what they have to do to get their guy. And uh, that's, I, I mean, whether that means taking on a bad contract or packaging multiple future firsts in order to move up a few spots. Uh, they obviously come into every draft with very you know, sort of deliberate targets and strong opinions about who they want and who they think is going to fit long-term. And then they maneuver their way into position to draft those players. And I think that's worked out very well for them over the past few years. I mean, obviously, TBD on the Poku pick that they uh, packaged multiple first to move up to take. But I think in general, I respect their commitment to just doing whatever they have to do in order to move up and, and get... Uh, the targets that they want. And like I saw reporting afterwards that the Magic were in talks with multiple teams, including the Raptors, about the 11th pick with teams wanting to move up to draft Cason Wallace at 11. So, you know, whether the Thunder got wind of that and that's why they decided to make this move or whether they were just planning on doing this anyway, they were able to beat out, you know, reportedly multiple other teams in order to get the guy they wanted. So kudos to them for that. The money doesn't matter, like in terms of Breton's salary, yeah. it just doesn't really make a huge difference for them. They're not a free agent destination anyway, and they're clearly trying to build this thing from the ground up. So the getting the right draft picks in the door is going to be more important than whatever cap space they cost themselves by doing this. All right. I think we, uh, we managed to do it. We managed to go through all seven teams who made relevant draft day trades, and we did it in less than 80 minutes. That's got to be a record for us. You want to do a fan shout-out and get out of here? Please. This week's fan shout-out goes to Matt Haggerty in Denver, who actually reached out to me via Instagram while I was in Denver because he saw that I was in Denver for the finals and uh, reached out about it, said he's been listening to the podcast for a while, also follows both of our written work, appreciates all of our deeper dives and says we've helped him improve his understanding of the NBA. So he just wanted to send some appreciation our way. Said he was excited to hear me uh, during the pre and post game pressers during the finals being in Denver. And I also want to send a special shout out to Matt as well, because as part of him reaching out, he also provided me with some restaurant recommendations while I was in Denver. So that was very much appreciated. And uh, we obviously appreciate the support of our work in general, Matt. So thank you for your support of both our pod work, our written work, our content in general. Congratulations on the Nuggets winning the first championship in franchise history. Hope you've been partying hard, celebrating that. And uh, hope this shout out is just a cherry on top of a championship month for you. So shout out, Matt. Thanks again. 
Shout out all of our loyal listeners. We want to give you a shout out, just like we did Matt, because you deserve it. So hit us up. Find me on Instagram like Matt did, at Joe underscore 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 cash. Find us on Twitter, at Joseph Cacharo, at Joey underscore double Y-O-U. Email us, joe.wolfond at thescore.com or joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. And let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, don't like about the show. And we'll make sure to get you a shout out on a future episode. But until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfond, for Mitch Kupchak, for Hugo the Hornet, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.